Has anyone ever heard of a man named E.P. Scott? I don't know his full name. E.P. Scott. No, that's good. That's because I was betting that you wouldn't have. So that's good because otherwise you would have undermined my whole story at this point. Um, What about a hymn called All Hail the Power of Jesus' Name? Some of you, yeah, some of you heard that. Great. Interestingly enough, Mr. Scott, E.P. Scott, he didn't, he's not the hymn writer. So uh, there we go. But there's a story uh, about him and that hymn, him and the hymn, that's very interesting. Okay, here we go. This is the lyrics to the hymn, in case those of, for those of you who haven't seen or heard this hymn before or sung it, all hail the power of Jesus' name. Let angels prostrate fall, bring forth the royal diadem and crown him Lord of all. Bring forth the royal diadem and crown him Lord of all. O seed of Israel's chosen race, now ransomed from the fall, hail him who saves you by his grace and crown him Lord of all. Hail him who saves you by his grace and crown him Lord of all. Let every tongue and tribe responsive to his call, to him all majesty ascribe and crown him Lord of all. To him all majesty ascribe and crown him Lord of all. Oh, that with all sacred throng we at his feet may fall, we'll join the everlasting song and crown him Lord of all. We'll join the everlasting song and crown him Lord of all. Now that's a beautiful hymn, isn't it? I really appreciate the lyrics and the, and the words to that. But why would I bring it up? Well, E.P. Scott was a, a traveling minister. Oh, kids, you can go straight out. Yep. It's all good. We're, we're running really fast ahead of the clock here this morning. So, um, uh, He was ministering in India. Um, in one of the big cities, and he was called, He felt a call to preach the gospel in the interior, uh, where you know this was a few years ago now, where people hadn't heard the gospel, and uh, his friends and family were like, "Look, it's really dangerous. You shouldn't go uh, out there. You shouldn't do that. You'll you'll get killed. All that sort of stuff." And he was like, "No, I'm going to ignore your advice, and I'm going to go and track through this dangerous wilderness to find people to share the journey with." And so he started off on his journey, and naturally enough. Uh, he was uh, ambushed pretty quickly, and these warriors jumped out of the uh, out of the bushes, and they had their spears, and they were going to kill him. And so he did what any normal person would do, and he took out his violin and started to play. <laughs> he closed his eyes and began to play and sing this hymn. This was the hymn, and he got to. He closed his eyes. He's playing along and he's singing, and he's like, you know, if I die, if I'm going down, I'm going down singing. Um, a little bit like that movie, The Mission. I don't know if you guys have seen that. Um, which is about a Catholic mission in the South American jungle. And uh, there's a priest who is playing his oboe or clarinet or something, and the same thing happens. Um, so he's playing his violin, and he gets to the third verse, and he opens his eye. Now, just the, this was the third verse here. Let every tongue and every tribe responsive to his call, to him all majesty ascribe and crown him Lord of all. To him all majesty ascribe and crown him Lord of all. And so he got here, and he opened his eyes, and he realizes, and he looks around, and he sees that all of the warriors have dropped all their weapons on the ground, and they are just weeping and crying and, and uh, just responding to this. And they actually invited him back to their village, and he spent the next two years sharing the goodness of Jesus and the gospel with that tribe. He discovered that day that singing out the name of Jesus, there's power in the name of Jesus. This is the proclamation 
and proof that Peter shares in the sermon that we're looking at today. Because we're in the second week of our series called Proclaim, looking at how the sermons in the book of Acts shape and um, proclaim the gospel to the ancient world. They're important to us because they, you remember, they give us a window into how uh, the first church preached the gospel, uh, how they shaped their message, how they constructed it to... Um, to speak to the world around them, uh, how they responded to the questions and the challenges and the inquiries that people spoke with. And so not only can we take those principles and say, well, this is how we might uh, share the gospel with people around us, but we can also say this is how we can apply it to our own personal lives and grow in our relationship with God. Now, in case you're wondering, we've actually skipped through a sermon because there's not just seven sermons in the book of Acts. I had to pick seven and so I've picked seven. I skipped one, which is a really good sermon, actually, in Acts chapter 3. Uh, if you want to read that, you can. But we're in Acts chapter 4 this morning. Um, and these two sermons, proclamations, are kind of linked together because they are all about, uh, they all kicked off by the same event. We're going to be Acts chapter 4. So if you want to go there now, you can. We're going to read from verse 1 to verse 14. So verse 1 to verse 14. Uh, While they were speaking to the people, that's Peter and John, the apostles, the captain of the temple police and the Sadducees confronted them because they were annoyed that they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. So they seized him, seized them and took them into custody until the next day, since it was already evening. But many of those who heard the message believed and the number of men came to about 5,000. The next day, their rulers, elders, and scribes assembled in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and all the members of the high priestly family. After they had Peter and John stand before them, they began to question them, by what power or in what name have you done this? Then Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit and said to them, rulers of the people and elders, If we are being examined today about a good deed done to a disabled man, by what means he was healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified and whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing here before you healthy. This Jesus is the stone rejected by you builders, which has become the cornerstone." There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved. When they observed the boldness of Peter and John, they realized that they were uneducated and untrained men. They were amazed and recognized that they had been with Jesus. And since they saw the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in opposition. Cool. So, you know what comes next. That's the story where we get to get the context, okay? Because that's important. Otherwise, we can misunderstand things very, very easily. So, in between Acts chapter 2, which was the sermon we looked at last Sunday, and this one in Acts chapter 4, the church has grown very quickly, very rapidly. You can see in the context of our verses today that just that sermon that Peter and John preached in Solomon's courtyard in the temple, 5,000 men came to believe in one day. Now, that's pretty cool. That's, that's uh, a, a very effective 
gospel message, isn't it? They've been going around preaching, healing, proclaiming Jesus, saying that he's the way, the truth, and the life, all of those things. And that's what gets them in trouble. Okay, They've healed a lame man. You remember this, right? The, this is the story where um, Peter and John are heading to the temple, and the man says, do you have any gold for me? And Peter turns to him and says, gold and silver I don't have, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus. Get up and walk. And the man just gets up, and he's jumping around and dancing, and he's super excited. And... Um, and everyone's like, whoa, isn't this guy? And so gives way to a sermon. And then 5,000 people get converted to the way. And Peter and John are arrested. And they're held overnight. And then they're brought before the Sanhedrin the next day for trial. Now, just to let you know, the Sanhedrin is the ruling body of the city. 71 members uh, on this governing council of the city. The high priest sat on the council. and previous high priests sat on the council. Now, a little aside about high priests and things like that, because it gives you a little insight into the way that this council operates. The high priest, uh, if you read in Exodus, is supposed to be appointed for life. So he's appointed and he serves a bit like the, the judges on the Supreme Court of the USA. They're appointed and then they go, or the Pope, you know, once they die, that's it. The next one comes along. Um, so why are there past high priests? So you'll remember in the story of Jesus' trial, there's Annas and Caiaphas, and both of those are referred to as the high priests. So how can there be two high priests if they're appointed for life? Well, what happened was when the Romans came along and they occupied Israel, they uh, would sell the position of high priest to the highest bidder. They had their, their guards and their armies and their military, and they would... Um, they would enforce on the people whoever the high priest was. And so the wealthy families would go, well, high priest is a political position. It affords me a lot of power, so I'm going to pay the Romans, and they will pronounce me the high priest. And every year you had to pay the Romans to stay in that position. So that's why there's multiple high priests sitting on this council. It's all very political, and the councils made their decisions to advance their own cause, and they always had an eye on Rome, the big um, empire power of the day. You can see this when they made the decision to kill Jesus. One of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. So you can see when um, John says that Caiaphas was the high priest that year, that's because he paid the, the fee to be able to be the high priest. The year before, it was Annas who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. You are not considering that it is to your advantage that one man should die for the people rather than the whole nation perish. Now, he, he, John says, well, he's speaking prophecy because he's talking about Jesus' death on behalf of everyone. But in Caiaphas's mind, he's going, look, if we don't get rid of Jesus, Rome is going to come and take us apart and destroy us, which happened in 70 A.D., Anyway, but they're always thinking of Rome. They're always thinking about self-preservation and how they could make sure that they kept their power. So that's who the Sanhedrin is. And they're the people that killed Jesus. So you remember, this is not years after Jesus was killed. This is months after, maybe even weeks, only weeks after Jesus was killed and raised from the dead. These people who had been responsible for his death are now questioning and interviewing Peter and John. And the question they ask is in verse 7. They say, Peter and John stand before them, and they began to question them, by what power or in what name have you 
done this. That's a great opportunity, isn't it? This is what everyone who's sharing the gospel really uh, like wants to hear. Like, tell me about this Jesus. <laughs> tell me exactly why it is you believe what you believe. Tell me why Jesus is the truth. Um, all of this sort of thing, which is really cool. And it's awesome that Peter has been paying attention to Jesus as he was uh, there and, and traveling along with Jesus. He's learned his lesson. Because Peter's a fiery kind of a guy, right? He always jumps in first with these extreme declarations like, you're the Christ, which is great. And then he says, you'll not die. Don't say that. And then <laughs> Jesus has to say, get behind me, Satan. And then he says, I'll never leave you. And then he does, I don't know that man, you know. So Peter's one of those guys. But he's learned his lesson a little bit, a little bit, because he still gets into trouble with Paul later. But anyway, he, he learns because he doesn't directly answer their question, right? It doesn't directly answer their question. I think that's the first thing that we can learn about when we're sharing the gospel with other people. You make sure that you want to define terms and answer the question on your own terms. Okay, That's what, uh, that's what you want to do because that's what um, Peter does. And he ans- answers the question like this. So here's the conversation. We'll sum it up. How did you do this? <laughs> right. That's what they ask him. Now Peter says, well... If by this, okay, you mean, and he's defining terms here, if by this you mean perform a good deed for someone who was sick, this man right here next to me, then we did it by the power of the name of Jesus. And their response? Silence, right? They don't have anything to say. But he's to, he, you see how he redefines it. He says, well, by this you mean. And so if someone says, well, tell me why God is love, and you could say, well, what do you mean by love? If by love you mean this, this, and this, then let me explain to you why God is like this. And Peter is relentless, right? He says, if by this you mean this, then it's by the name of Jesus. And then he continues in verse 12. He says, and by this name there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved. Not like we can be saved, we might be saved, but we must be saved. And so now we have to ask the question, because Peter's saying, only Jesus can save. We have to ask, well, what does it mean to be saved? When Peter says that, and they hear that, what would they have thought? What would they have thought that he meant? Because they're all experts in the Old Testament, right? Most of them have memorized it, and they know that's what the Scripture says, and they know that uh, th- there's verses like this in Isaiah, which is, I, I am the Lord, besides me, there is no Savior. So you can imagine the co- cognitive dissonance that that kind of creates in them when they're like, you're saying that there's no other name under heaven that we can be saved, but our Scriptures, God says that he's the only one who can save. So what's Peter doing? He's saying that Jesus is God. And we know that Jesus said that in the I am statements. And that got Jesus into a lot of trouble. You remember they picked up stones to stone him and he's like, well, what of my good deeds are you going to stone me for? And they say, no, not not for your good deeds. We're going to stone you because you make yourself God. And so what Peter is saying is that the way that you are saved, and by saved they mean being included into the people of God because that's how God saves in the Old Testament. He makes a people for himself. That's the story of the Old Testament. God 
um, through, uh, he starts with uh, Adam, then Noah, then Abraham. And Abraham's call is that he will be a great nation. God chooses a people for himself. And that's the story of the Old Testament, is God making and creating that people so that they, through them, all the nations of the world would be blessed. And so Peter's saying there's no way to be included in God's family. There's no way to be reconciled to God and included in all these promises than by coming through Jesus. Now, this is huge because up until this point, entrance into the kingdom had been based on observance of Torah. The whole point of the law was to show the difference between who was in God's kingdom family and who was out, to distinguish the people of God from those who were not, which is why the Israelites and uh, were always very careful to make that distinction because they're like, no, no, we're in, we're holy, we're purified, we are God's people, and everyone else is out. It was to be made clean, was to obey the Torah. That's why there's all those sacrifices in there, to make you clean before God so that you could approach him and not die. And you think about Isaiah's vision of God in Isaiah chapter 5. He encounters with God. He says, and I, I was in the throne room and I saw the Lord high and lifted up, seated on his throne and the train of his robe filled the temple. And, and what does he say? He's like, I'm going to die because I've seen God. But then he's cleansed by the, you know, the angel goes to the altar, gets a burning coal off the altar and touches it to his lips and says, you've been cleansed and purified. And he can stand in God's presence. And then he's really excited because all of a sudden uh, God says, who shall we send out to these people? And he's like, pick me, pick me, pick me, you know, because I've been cleansed. I'm, I'm able to stand in your presence. That's being saved, to be part of God's family, to live out how God has planned for us to live from the beginning. But Peter says that only happens through Jesus. His name is the name that restores all things. That's how it happens. Now, I don't know if you caught in the middle of the, his, his speech there, his reference to the thing that grounds all of the gospel uh, proclamations in the book of Acts, and that is the resurrection. Right? That's, the, that's the pivot on which everything swings. That's what the messages all have in common because the, um, the resurrection is God's vindication of Jesus. He says to them, this man, Jesus, who you killed, he said, God raised him from the dead. That was the first manifestation of the power of Jesus. And now because God has raised him and vindicated him, uh, this is what happens. As Paul writes, for this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every other name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So it's because of the resurrection that Jesus has this name, and all of this happens through him. It's the power of God at work through Jesus, because Jesus is God. That's the connection that the resurrection makes for us. And so that's like the first thing that, Jesus, that Peter, the demonstration that Peter gives, the resurrection. And we talked about that last week, how you can point to the historical fact of the resurrection as proof. The second um, proof is that 
there's the man standing next to them who is fully healed. And that's uh, in verse 14. That's what they look at. And they say, well, we don't have an answer because there's a guy here who used to be lame. And now he's walking and dancing and jumping around. And that's it, right? We don't have an answer to that. Here he was there, lame, and now he's not. That's the proof that the kingdom has come, that salvation is now available, that wholeness is available, that life in the kingdom is here and now. Because God raised Jesus, because of the resurrection, because of the uh, fulfillment of that um, and the payment and the penalty of sin, he has poured out the Holy Spirit on all who believe and he's made it possible for the kingdom of God, which is still to come in its fullness, to be here and to be participated in here and now. Some of that healing, some of that wholeness, some of that restoration and freedom and abundance is available to us here and now. And that's what this man standing next to them is proof of. So if you need proof, here's the guy. Here's the man who's the proof. And we talked, as I said, we talked about that last week. And there's this thread that will go through a lot of these messages. But this is the story this man has to tell. I once was like this. I met Jesus, and now I am like this. And we all have those stories of our encounter with Jesus. I was lame, and I had to sit outside the temple begging. But then I encountered Jesus, and now I'm healed and whole, and I can walk, and I can be part of the community again. So the first thing he points to is the resurrection. The second thing is the man standing there because of the resurrection, because of the power of God at work and the kingdom coming now. He's standing here healed and whole. And then the third thing, that Peter points out is John and himself. Because the Sanhedrin tells us, when they observed the boldness, this is going to change, there we are, of Peter and John and realized that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and recognized that they had been with Jesus. Now you remember, these guys are the religious leaders and they like to look important and impressive and special. And so they... They spent their lives studying and, as I said, in some cases, memorizing the Torah, which you go, man, how could you do that? But some people, some people still do that even today. I have a hard time memorizing my phone number or my address, and I'm always thinking, what is my postcode? You know, it's only four numbers, but I'm like, what, which one is it? Um, but some people manage to memorize entire books of the Bible, entire you know, Old Testament, New Testament. Uh, but these two guys... These the Sanhedrin, these 71 men are standing here looking at these two men and going, you are uneducated, <laughs> and yet you are so bold as to teach the teachers. Now, this also happens later in the book of Acts with Stephen, right? And he uh, ends up retelling the whole story of Israel and uh, he really annoys these people because they're like, who are you to teach us? all of this stuff. We know all of this stuff. And they get angry and they take him outside and they kill him. (laughs) So it's not without consequence. And we'll look at that in a second as well. But in doing so, they recognize the boldness of these people is the same boldness that Jesus had, right? Jesus didn't shy back from uh, any of this sort of confrontation. I mean, he called these guys brood of vipers, right? And he pronounced curses on them. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. He does that all throughout, uh, I think it's Matthew 23. You can read the seven woes that he pronounces on them. But um, I love that these men who 
no doubt interrogated Jesus on the day of his crucifixion. These guys are the council that would have done that. They recognize in the way that these guys talk and the way that they are bold to proclaim the message in face of harsh punishment. And let's be honest, none of us have probably ever had to defend or proclaim or share our faith with the consequences that these guys had hanging over them in our own lives. This is what happened to them in the next chapter after they were told, don't do this, and then they did it anyway. And then they came back and they had them flogged. Now, flogging is not the same as scourging, which happened to Jesus, but it's still being whipped uh, 39 times um, with rods, right? And I've never had to face flogging, okay? No one's ever said, look, if you tell me about Jesus, I'm going to flog you. Uh, No one said that. But these guys were bold in the face of this sort of punishment, Um, And the scripture goes on to say after this that they rejoiced that they could suffer this sort of punishment. I'm like, well, I've never had to uh, face the threat of flogging, let alone when it's happened, rejoice afterwards that I would be counted worthy to suffer the same fate as Jesus. But time with Jesus made these men bold, made them wise as serpents, but harmless as doves, just as Jesus had promised them. But this is partly our story as well. Again, it's like, a, it's like the before and after situation. Before I met Jesus, I was like this. I encountered Jesus, and now I'm like this. And for me, my, my, story, is, um, my story is, there we go, <laughs> um, is to do with my education, part of my story. Um, I found myself struggling through high school. I wasn't really the best student. Mum will always tell you that it's because I never applied myself. Um, But I never really got good grades even when I did apply myself or even when I felt that I had applied myself. Um, But I remember I enrolled in Bible college, and we did the first paper that I ever did at Bible college was on the Gospel of Mark. And maybe this is why it's one of my favorite Gospels or my favorite Gospel. But I got my first assignment back, and I got an A. And I, I looked at it, and I was like, I, I had to make sure that it said A, even though it's just a you know, letter in red A. But I was like, are you sure? Like, this isn't, I, I didn't feel like I put much effort in, and I got an A. I was like, wow, this is amazing. I feel like I've done something really wonderful. Um, and I had to check a couple of times that that's the difference that Jesus made in my life. It wasn't that uh, I was all of a sudden super intelligent or anything like that, but he had, uh, I don't know, somehow transformed the way that I understood or the way that I could apply myself, and, and it just made this difference. And that's the sort of thing that we can share with other people as well. It's the sort of thing that people should see in us. And I want to finish with this quote from Tim Keller who writes about this, and he says, the reason they, that's the Sanhedrin, were astonished was because they did not grasp the gospel. The gospel is that one's past record is never pristine. It is full of selfishness, pride, and sin for all of us. And that therefore ordinary men, that is those whose past is filled with selfishness, pride, and sin, ordinary men, so that's every one of us as well, can be saved and chosen and gifted by God for service. Peter and John have this confidence of their boldness before these people because they have received their position with God and their position in his service all by grace. So each one of us can also uh, receive our 
identity, our position, and our service of God by grace. This is how we all are. And so how are we going to use what God has given us by grace to share with those around us? That's the question I want us to think about as we come to communion this morning. We're going to pray, and then um, we'll transition into communion.